Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Okay, let's uh, go ahead and uh, start with the introductions. Um, is there anyone here for the first or second time? Please raise your hand. Okay, welcome. So, we'll go around the room now. My name is uh, Douglas. I'm Mark. I'm Charlie. Baruch. Peter. Jay. Joe. I'm Kay. I'm Jerry. Michael. And Lenny. And Jim. Lee. Oh, Larry. And Jim. Peter. And Lee. Will. Katuana. Our speaker today is uh, Jennifer. <coughs> I just wanted to introduce Goodman uh, to the okay. community. She's my second mother from uh, Petaluma, and uh, together we're attending our first uh, wedding of a gay couple this afternoon. And uh, she's uh, delighted always to be with the Sangha. Our speaker today is uh, Jennifer Barazan. And she's a uh, singer, songwriter, and activist. Uh, she's originally from Canada, where she started playing the guitar in the second grade. And uh, her music deals with themes of uh, social justice, environment, and Buddhist spirituality. She's produced a number of uh, CDs, and she has a few here available for purchase. And she's going to share a new song with us today. She recently was in uh, South Korea performing and teaching, and even more recently than that, she was in Nevada knocking on doors, attempting to influence the outcome of the upcoming <coughs> presidential election. <coughs> Jennifer? Thank you. Well, it's uh, a great uh, pleasure and a privilege to be back here with you. Um, it's rare that I get to spend Sunday morning with a room full of so many handsome men, so <laughs> it's a real treat for me, and this is the kind of church that I believe in, so <laughs> I'm glad that you're here. And, you know, because, um, like so many of you, I kind of believed in, believe in engaged spirituality or engaged Buddhism, um, I've been, maybe some of you might join me in this feeling a little anxious lately. <laughs> But all the propositions, Prop 8, and the, uh, the election, of course, the presidential election. So I just celebrate the fact that you've all chosen to come here this morning and just take this time to 
connect inside and find that place that is, um, you know, that really is that stable refuge that I know that we can connect to through spiritual practice that isn't susceptible to all of the chaos around us that we can anchor back <laughs> into. So for me, it's very important too. So this is a wonderful gift to be able to come here with you this morning. Um, he was mentioning about, I, I, did, I went to Nevada at the beginning of the week and uh, in Reno. <laughs> was I just I decided that I needed to do something besides just kvetch with my anxiety. I thought it'd be a medicine to actually just uh, for me personally at that point I needed to just um, talk to some, talk to people and do what I felt like I could in a very practical way as a way to kind of as an antidote to my own anxieties and my own concerns, and um, really felt that uh, I really noticed in that process that. Um, having a spiritual practice for me is um, absolutely life-saving in these times because it is that way of being able to anchor back down into that that still calm place where I can uh, you know, feel at ease again regardless of what's going on. And it helped me a lot. Uh, my friend and I did a little meditating before we began our process and it was very useful. So um, I want to begin with you just with uh, some chanting and then uh, talk a little bit and then just weave some songs and chants through our time together. So <clears throat> the first one is a beautiful Tibetan Buddhist chant to Tara, who is um, probably the most famous deity in Tibet. And you know, if you know anything about Tibetan Buddhism, there are all these this pantheon of deities, and um, they represent many different things. Often they represent uh, qualities of awareness and consciousness, um, and there's many ways of understanding them, but some of the deepest levels is that they represent aspects of our own true nature, and Tara represents this um, being who is uh, being of great, great wisdom and compassion, and she manifests in many different forms, and this is green Tara, who is often shown with one foot sitting in lotus position and the other one extended because she's ready to respond to the world's needs. So she's a, she's a wonderful uh, it's a wonderful chant. Her mantra has been chanted trillions of times all over the world. Very famous uh, mantra in the Buddhist world. And um, you can just relax. And when you do the chanting, you can sort of treat, treat it like your breathing practice. You know, you just come back to it. You don't you want to be relaxed though. You don't want to be uncomfortable or be working too hard. You want to just invite ease into the practice as much as possible. So the words are simply Om Tara. Tutare, Ture, Soha. Did you want to say that? Om Tara, Tutare, Ture, Soha. Om Tara, Tutare, Ture, Soha. Om Tara, Tutare. Tara to Tare to Re 
sitting for a moment just noticing the effects of just a little bit of chanting on your body and your mind and continuing to relax. form of Buddhist practice off and on for the last 20 years or so. I started my first retreat when I was 24 and went on a, a very traditional Vipassana retreat in the Goenka tradition of uh, Burmese and uh, it took me about a year to recover from that retreat. It was extremely uh, intense and uh, it had a huge impact on my um, every aspect of my being. I had to spend a long time integrating it. Um, and then kind of did more gentle approaches with Thich Nhat Hanh and Pema Chodron and lots of retreats at Spirit Rock. And, um, it's sort of been just you know an ongoing process of learning as I go. And I've been, over the years, uh, you know, involved in various spiritual paths, many earth-based uh, traditions, <laughs> And uh, as a lesbian, have often wondered what it means to be, what, how the intersection between my sexual orientation and my spirituality happens. And I, when I was here last time, I talked about it a little bit, those of you who are here, and you know, just wondering, is there such thing as a, a gay spirituality, or is there such thing as a gay Buddhism, or Buddhist practice, or does being gay in some ways inform our practice in a particular way, or not? And um, as much as I believe that there's a, a real fluidity when it comes to gender and sexuality, um, in my own experience, I know that being lesbian definitely, um, on, I could even say on some level, was a catalyst for my spirituality, spirituality to unfold. Um, largely because, and I'm going to read something from Eckhart Tolle that I just read that kind of, maybe some of you have read this, uh, that just really reflects this experience that I've that I've had, and that so many of us have had. That especially in the generation that I uh, was raised in. I mean, I'm not sure if be, I guess it depends on where you where you grow up these days, and um, in most places in the world still. When when you uh, come to know yourself as different in whatever way, and certainly being gay is still pretty different, as we know from the fight even on Prop 8. <laughs> uh, that it um, starts to question the conditioning that we're raised with. And if anything, the Buddhist teachings are all about undoing conditioning, right? The conditioned mind, the habits of seeing the world, the um, ways that we've, taught, we've been taught things are. And, um, and that has to do also very much, I think, with um, these very limited ideas of sexuality and gender that we've been many of us um, very, um, through religion, through many different aspects of our culture have been ultimately kind of 
brainwashed by. And um, so I'm going to read this little quote from Eckhart because he sort of says it very well. He's, there's a question here that says, um, is the quest for enlightenment, in the quest for enlightenment, is being gay a help or a hindrance? Or does it not make any difference? And he says, as you approach adulthood, uncertainty about your sexuality followed by the realization that you are different from others may force you to disidentify from socially conditioned patterns of thoughts and behavior. This will automatically raise your level of consciousness above that of the unconscious majority, whose members unquestionably take on board all inherited patterns. In that respect, being gay can be a help. Being an outsider to, t to some extent, someone who does not fit in with others or is rejected by them for whatever reason, makes life difficult in some ways, but it also places you in, at an advantage as far as enlightenment is concerned. It takes you out of unconsciousness almost by force. I love that. <laughs> so I think for many of us, we can relate to that. And I know that was certainly true for me, and not always easy to be taken out of consciousness by force, um, however. And, um, and he goes on to say it at the same time that if we're overly identified, if all we identify with is being gay, if that's the only thing we think we are, that's also limiting, because we don't, we don't, you know, we just limit the way we see the world and ourselves, if it's just only about that. So any way that we kind of um, re reduce the, the possibilities of who we are through these very narrow pairs of glasses he talks about is limiting us. So I, I really feel like that has been my own personal story. Um, and then I think also there's just particular qualities um, that can happen culturally when you're awakening. You know, for example, uh, many teachers I've, I know who teach in, for example, Latin America, they'll say that when they teach Dharma practice in Latin America, in Brazil or something, it's just a certain flavor of practice than if they were teaching in Sweden. The cultural, um, uh, cultural, um, the many manifestations of culture, and, and gay culture is one of those, can color our spirituality, and I, I really believe that too. The ways that we are in community, um, the, just our sittings, they have a particular flavor to them. And um, so I, I, I just want to throw in my hat and say that I think there's something really particular uh, for us as gay people. And also, of course, we're all individuals and we're experiencing it in our own ways. But I don't know that it's been addressed that much in, um, by Buddhist teachers. And one thing also that I've seen to be true is that women, uh, people of color, and gays and lesbians have changed the face of Buddhism, um, by, certainly in North America and in Europe. Because many of the teachers who came here from traditional cultures were are early on confronted with questions. As we know, the Dalai Lama was confronted with questions and had to confront their own conditioning, uh, which has happened uh, a lot in the last decade. There's been a great movement, I think, to understanding. Um, I remember being in retreats years ago and just furiously scribbling questions, you know, being very disturbed because I felt like I wasn't in any way being reflected in uh, the teachings, that there was, um, first of all, a real patriarchal overlay in many of the, the, the teachings. And, and being gay wasn't even, you know, it was like there was all these, I'd go to these retreats and there'd be all these uh, lesbians that I knew, but it, we were very uh, under the wire. And uh, that has really changed. Eventually there would be like gay and lesbian caucuses, and you know, we know that this is all 
changing. So I think it's been a great gift to Buddhism, our questioning and our becoming part of, of this, this great community. And uh, Buddhism is supposed to change and grow um, depending on cultures that it, it encounters. So. And the other thing I'll say is that there's also this wonderful tradition that many of you know um, that isn't a Buddhist tradition, but it's more a shamanistic tradition where, um, you know, in First Nation peoples, the tradition of the Two-Spirited peoples or the Badash peoples in Native American cultures, that uh, lots of books have been written. Many people have written about the particular quality uh, historically in indigenous cultures, uh, the roles that gay people often had in shamanistic ways, because they were seen as being able to hold dualisms, that they were the shamans in a culture are the ones who can uh, shapeshift and can move between the worlds more easily. And so often people who weren't so, um, you know, strictly identified with uh, gender and sexual roles were the ones who were seen as having that capacity to shift and to move, and they were seen as um, often the shamans in the cultures. So. If you're interested in that, there's many beautiful books uh, about that. And I think that's also part of our tradition spiritually. Um, so I want to do a, another chant with you that's all about waking up to our true natures. And this wonderful instrument is really an instrument of waking up. I have been in Korea a number of times over the last few years doing... Uh, being parts of, of kind of world music, spiritual music festivals in the temples there, and teaching workshops, and and when you're in the temples in the mountains, every few hours you hear this sound, and either the head monk or the head nun, depending if you're in a, with the nuns or the monks, they have separate monasteries, plays this instrument and for the chanting, and this is really the sound of wake up. Wake up, you only have this moment. We only have this moment. Don't waste time. Don't put things off. This is the only moment we have right now. And in this moment, it's the same with the bell. You know in Zen practice, you do this first. That says, okay, are you ready? This is your chance. This is your chance to encounter your own true nature. And the bell is seen um, often, it's really the sound of the Buddha, or the, the Kuan Yin, or Bodhisattva inside of us, our own true nature. So in that moment, we get to have the opportunity to experience it. And the great liberation that happens when, we, when, we, when we're in touch with that. So that's what this is also. It's also really good when you have to meditate at four in the morning, I think. So we're just going to do a little, uh, little bit of this chant to Kuan Yin, who is... Um, She's kind of a precursor to Tara, and she's often very androgynous. She comes from Avalokiteshvara, who is the Bodhisattva of Compassion from India, who is often male and sometimes female, and then kind of morphed into Kuan Yin in China and Southeast Asia, and in Korea. In Korea, she's known as Kuan Se, Kuan Se Umbosal, Kuan Yin Bodhisattva. So we'll just chant her, to her a little bit, and you'll have the experience of <coughs> the opportunity to wake up. So I'll sing the lines, and you can sing them back. We'll learn the melody that way. Kwan Seum Bo Kwan Seum Bo Kwan Seum Bo Kwan Seum Bo Sao. 
Juan se ambosa. Juan se ambosa. Juan se ambosa. Juan se ambosa. One more time, call response. Juan se ambosa. Juan se ambosa.
share this song with you as a kind of meditation. Just relax. And so many of the um, teachers who I love, who I've been sitting with lately, talk a lot about how as Westerners, um, we really don't know how to relax. And you can't really meditate if you can't relax. Because med meditation, although it, it takes a certain kind of effort, too much efforting kind of, you know, it's not really what it's about. Type A personalities like myself have to really work with that feeling of trying to get somewhere on a meditation, meditating or doing it right, or always kind of chasing after the outcome. And uh, it seems like, uh, you know, so often we confuse spacing out in our culture with relaxing, you know, surfing the web or watching TV, or instead of really learning what it's like to completely stop. How do we stop? I think sometimes it's because it feels uncomfortable at first. You know, it's like we start to notice what's really going on. And, um, but then when we sink down beneath that and really allow, allow ourselves to stop the way that we do when we're on a meditation retreat or something, the great gift of that, you know, the great relief that comes from that. And this song is a little bit about that. It has a title that I always like to explain because the song is called The End of Desire, End of Desire, and um, sometimes that phrase gets translated as renunciation, and renunciation gets seen as turning away from the world, turning away from the body, from Enjoyment from uh, the things that give us pleasure, you know, and really, um, I, I might have said this last time, but I think of myself as a either a, a Dharma-loving pagan or a pleasure-loving Buddhist. And <laughs> both of those paths have great things to offer, and um, this is more about, it's not about pushing away from, it's about those moments when we're so present that this great aliveness awakens up in us, and that whatever is happening, whoever we are in the moment, is enough. And that great relief that comes, we all know it, we've had moments like that, where we no longer have to uh, feel that we have to change something, or you know, uh, change ourselves, or get something else, or acquire something in order to feel okay. That, we, that moment of great relief when we realize that pure beingness is what we're looking for. It's what we're all after, but we're confused about how to get it, how to get that sense of just well-being and um, at easeness. And so we, find we all spend a lot of time, you know, in other activities trying to make that happen. So this is the end of desire. through forest 
do this uh, song with you next that some of you may know as a one hour long piece that I recorded on a CD. I only get to do five minutes of it maybe. And I think I'll introduce it with this beautiful Mary Oliver poem. It's called Mindfulness. It's really, it's a, it's um, for me, um, <coughs> I had to learn that gratitude um, Gratitude is a practice. Gratitude can be a great antidote to despair and to so many of the things that ail us, you know. So this is a little bit about that. And, and then we'll sing the, the song of praise for, for the world. Mindful. 
every day I see or I hear something that more or less kills me with kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It is what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world, the ocean's shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. Sure. 
have a few minutes to maybe have some questions or comments if you like, and then we'll have one last song together. Anybody? You know, there are lots of traditions of chanting in Buddhist, Buddhist practice, and it sort of depends where you, where you go and what, what traditions you're talking about. Um, but definitely it's not similar, you know, a lot of the chanting that you hear these days in yoga centers or something like that tends to be Hindu-based, the kirtan chanting and all that, and sometimes there'll be a mix. I mean, it's getting very mixed up these days, right? So you can go to an ashram, or I mean a yoga center, and they'll be chanting, um, you know, a Buddhist chant, uh, for sure. So um, I think that that's something that's emerging in the West in a new way. I mean, I, especially in, in the more Buddhist uh, uh, side of it, the Hindu chanting's been here since Krishna Das started making his first records. I mean, it's been huge. Um, but um, in the typical traditions of what I've seen, they, a lot of the, the Buddhist chanting tends to be much more monotone, kind of, you know, and I think it's trying to get towards still mind. And the Hindu chanting is all about creating ecstasy and merging with the divine often. Although it's kind of, um, you know, it, it, you find both elements. You can sit and do these beautiful just mantric tonal practices in Buddhism and feel this amazing um, ecstasy inside. And you can do ecstatic, wild Hindu chanting and feel calm at the center. So I think that all these energies can exist in these different forms. I think that chanting can be a, an amazing way to uh, settle the body and the mind um, because it's vibrational and it's actually, you know, when you start to sing and chant and there's others, I mean, you can feel it in the room, you can feel it, your own um, cells start to change. I mean, we could, this is, I do a whole entire workshops and classes on this at CIS and stuff, and uh, all from a scientific point of view, what happens to your body from chant. Um, and to your brain waves, they start to slow down, and you start to naturally access that state that we're trying to, you know, settle into when we're doing meditation practice. Sometimes we are so kind of active that it's very hard, it takes a long time to settle through just breathing practice, right, just sitting practice. And the chanting can be a great way because of the, you're sort of applying vibration to the system, and it's, it's kind of meeting it, you know, with a kind of energy. And... Um, it's, I find it a very power, powerful thing to do before meditation. You know, it can be a great way to settle into the quiet meditation. Um, but there are a number of uh, resources, um, Buddhist uh, things that you can find. You can get CDs of these days. If you, if you just start looking, um, people who are, you know, the mantras. And there's some beautiful stuff out of uh, some Tibetan singers doing uh, extraordinary things, beautiful singers. You know, there's sort of the usually chanting the same mantras, the same sutras and things. So, but um, I think that it's um, changing a lot because of uh, Western musicians starting to uh, create kind of amalgams of contemporary and traditional creations. So, yeah, it's a very powerful thing to do. But you won't. It's true. You know, when you go to a Vipassana retreat, you're not going to find it. <laughs> Hi. I want to thank you for praises 
for the world. It's, it's been a really a great source of solace and grounding in my life. So I want to thank you for that great inspiration of peace. You, ju you just came back from Korea. Are you observing any shift in the East and in, in Korea uh, around sexuality, in particular gay sexuality? Are the monks, the teachers there addressing this in any way? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. But what is happening in a place like South Korea, because it's quite um, connected to the West in many ways, industrially, and, and there's a lot of movement back and forth, there's a there's a um, there's a there's a strong feminist movement and there's a strong women's movement and there's an emerging gay and lesbian movement that probably is similar to maybe early '60s here. Culturally, things are sort of like the early '60s, and there I mean, the, before the '60s really happened, right? There's a kind of it's merging. It's it's almost like Korea is in the 1950s and it's starting to bubble out of that, and the new generation is going to take it to a new place. And that's partly because of the internet and all of the people getting educated in the West and a lot of mix. But um, there's, you know, um, my partner actually lives and teaches in Korea right now. And she's constantly um, talking about these issues with her, you know, 22-year-old students. And they are so open. I mean, they are so not used to talking about it. And all they want to do after she brings it up is talk about it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, once they start to see it as a, an issue of fairness and and just they, they're so open it, it's so naturally they, they're just so naturally different from their um, the elders you know who have been it's a whole other generation so I, I think things are shifting but within the spiritual you know Buddhism in Korea is very Confucius um, influenced and Korean culture is very Confucian and when you get that you know you, there's a lot that needs to change so, but I just, I wonder, you know, I think we're talking another generation, but it's starting to, to, to shift in the culture. So eventually, hopefully, it would have, will have an impact. But I think it's true of most of Asia when it comes to Buddhism. Yeah. yeah. I want to uh, say I appreciate your acknowledgement of um, being gay and questioning spirituality or having a different approach on things. <clears throat> I just wanted to share my, my favorite picture of description of being gay uh, it says gay, being gay may be just a very small part of who we are as an individual person but like one drop of ink in a glass of clear water it colors everything mm -hmm. absolutely thank you What was your experience like in Reno as far as any challenges or? Oh, yes. <laughs> but it was really, um, you know, we live in a bubble here, right? I mean, that was really clear to me. I, it made me understand a lot of the arguments that are being made. Um, it made me understand sort of what we're up against, trying to get a progressive majority in this country. We were sent into very... Um, Primarily white working class neighborhoods, lower working class, I would say. The kind of people they keep talking about as the blue collar working class people that Obama needs to reach. And um, overall, I think people were pretty receptive. Um, we were only knocking on Democrats' doors to get them to go out and vote early. But uh, people were overall receptive. You know, there was some hostility, there was some overt 
racism, for sure. A few people willing to actually say that. And, um, but, but overall, I, I think people just seem completely overworked and uh, struggling. That's the feeling I got. And uh, that this whole, that the, the economic interests are, are the main thing right now for people was so obvious. And if they, hopefully people can understand that to vote their own economic interests it would be a good idea. And it was really clear in those areas that people are really struggling. Yeah. So it was really good to see. And it was, it was really wonderful to just, uh, you know, now for me, I have, I'm very invested in Nevada, you know, because I'm going there and I have these images of these people I talk to. And I, I see their faces and I remember our conversations and it made me have so much, we were only there for two days, and it, it made me have so much uh, appreciation for the people who, who are out there, you know, who have you know, left their jobs to, to work on the campaigns or who are just giving hours and hours and hours and, and I just, you know, honor them. And all. It's, it's, it takes a, a great amount of uh, energy and devotion, and, but it's all, there's a great uh, benefit to you know, it's very, you feel really connected, uh, even just for the few days. I can only imagine if someone's just working constantly, you know, so, yeah. I felt uh, very hopeful, though. And Nevada's, you know, things are going very well in Nevada, at least from my point of view. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to finish with this one last song um, with you. And this is a piece that I working on creating it's a it's a form of the meta prayer many of you know the loving kindness prayer that is often used um, in many forms look at all these beautiful little insects up so here <laughs> yeah nice so um there's a little bit of a song that goes first and then there's a meta prayer that we can uh, sing together to finish today uh, <clears throat> so the word of the meta uh, just may all beings be happy May all beings be safe. May all beings everywhere be free. to do my part 
Let sorrow be a doorway into an open heart. And the light on the hills is full of mercy. And the wind in the trees, it comes.
Um, there are refreshments out there and tea. If you have tea, please wash your cup and put it on the dish rack. <laughs> on the counter, you'll find the donable and you're encouraged to please give what you can. Uh, suggested donation is five to eight dollars, but if you'd like to leave a thousand dollars, that's fine. <laughs> uh, near the donable, there's a sign up sheet for newcomers. And if you want to receive the newsletter, put your name, address, email address especially. And afterwards at around 12.30, some of the members will go out to lunch. So if you meet by the door, you can all gather and go together. <coughs> oh, and for the goodies, those of us who are vegan, the chocolate cake is vegan, the others are not. <laughs> Any other announcements? Hi, I'm Jerry, I'm your speaker coordinator. Next week, oh, first of all, thanks, Jennifer, for coming. And next week, Tim Wickens will be here. He comes from the Theravadan tradition, and he's lived at Spirit Rock for a couple of years, and he's going to speak on the crucible of self-doubt. Anyone else? Yes? Oh, uh, Kay? Uh, yes, I'm, my name is Kay, and uh, every year, uh, GBF celebrates Thanksgiving Day by having a potluck. And this year, again, we're having potluck on Thursday, November 27th at my place in East Bay. And if you're interested in coming, please let me know because we are trying to coordinate dishes for that special feast. So, and everyone is welcome. Oh, uh, speaking of activism, um, Prop 8 uh, needs people's help on Election Day uh, to get out the vote. Um, apparently, it's going to be a statistical tie, so it's really on the knife edge. Uh, they particularly need people to go to the East Bay to go to polling places and hand out flyers. There'll be a training this evening at the headquarters on Market and Maui at 6 o'clock, or you can call them or drop by. There are three trains. There's one, to, there, I think there are two today. Okay, is that it? Uh, I don't know. We've sort of already had our dedication of merit. We, we usually form a circle, you know. Could we do another chorus or something? <laughs> sure. I'll have to sit, but yes, All right. sure. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list 
by visiting GayBuddhist.org. <laughs>